The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. In Psalm 32, in verse 1, Psalm 32 in verse 1, David writes by inspiration, saying, Blessed is the man, or blessed is he, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Forgiveness is a central theme of Scripture, of course. It's really what it's all about. Another word we might use is redemption, and it has a lot to do with forgiveness. And we can all understand the blessedness of forgiveness on a horizontal basis, that is, forgiveness between each other as fellow human beings. We've often needed to give forgiveness, and we've often needed to receive forgiveness And especially when we receive that forgiveness, we certainly understand the blessed nature of it and how much of a relief comes with it and how grateful we are when we've wronged someone or we've done something wrong and we have been given forgiveness. But although forgiveness is a central theme in Scripture, like many themes in Scripture, it's it's very widely misunderstood. And we need to go back to the basics, if you will, on forgiveness to understand its blessed nature, and to accurately consider it as it pertains to the will of God. In the New Testament, forgiveness is a translation of two Greek words primarily. The main translation comes from aphemai, and that's a compound word from apo meaning from and hemai meaning to send. And so Vine defines it as to send forth, to send away, to remit or forgive. Consider 103rd Psalm in verse 12. The psalmist writes, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When we commit wrong before God or before another and we are forgiven of that wrong, it is removed from us. Really, it's removed from our account. It's not that it never happened, but it's not noticed anymore. It is not held on record anymore. It is sent away. And the other Greek word that is used for forgiveness in the New Testament is Parizomai, and it means to do something pleasant or agreeable, to do a favor to gratify, according to Thayer. And specifically, in our lesson tonight, it has reference to granting forgiveness, to giving pardon. And so certainly when our offenses are sent away and we are forgiven of them and relieved of them, that's a blessed thing. It is favor that is granted to us, and it is indeed gratifying. Consider the blessed nature of forgiveness and all that it entails. We need to understand why we need forgiveness and how to get forgiveness and what the purpose of forgiveness is. And so before we get in further to the lesson, understand that this is really a comprehensive look at forgiveness, a concise look at forgiveness. And so as we speed along, if you will, don't worry about not uh, being able to keep up with the lesson as far as note-taking is concerned. If you want these notes, uh, feel free to ask me and I'll give those to you. Consider firstly, at the basis, the need for forgiveness. The need is obviously the sin of man, especially concerning forgiveness before the Father. In Romans 3 and verse 23, the apostle wrote by inspiration that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wretched nature of sin is put on full display there in verse 23 of Romans 3. 
When we sin, we fall short of God's glory. That is, we fail to honor and glorify God. And we can understand how, by the definition the Holy Spirit gives us of sin in 1 John 3 and verse 4, when John writes, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It is missing the mark of God's law, but it's not simply at its face missing the mark. There's a deeper implication to that. If we just think of it of simply missing the mark, like shooting at a target, it may not be as potent to us. But Romans 3.23 shows us that in missing that mark and failing to follow God's law and committing what is lawless, we fail to glorify, honor God. In Ecclesiastes 12.13, we know the purpose of God is to fear God and keep His commandments. In order to fulfill our created purpose, we've got to follow God's law. Our whole purpose is to glorify Him and honor Him and render service to Him. And when we sin, that is, transgress His law, we fail in our whole created purpose. We need to realize how much we really do need forgiveness for all have sinned and fallen short of our created purpose to glorify God. But I want us to also stress the fact that the need for forgiveness, while universal, is boiled down to an individual basis. You don't need forgiveness because of something I've done, and I don't need forgiveness because of something you've done. The truth is, all need forgiveness, but all need forgiveness because all are guilty in and of themselves. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the Holy Spirit records that the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the weakness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And that helps us gain a greater understanding of the gospel. The gospel is good news, and a lot of people take that and run with it, thinking that since it's good news, there's no negative in it. But the whole reason for the good news of the gospel of salvation is the negative of sin and our personal guilt. And so the gospel is designed to convict us of that sin, because if we're not convicted of sin, we don't come to the realization of our desperate need for forgiveness. So Paul, in writing to the Romans, showed that the Gentiles were under sin and then proceeded to show that even the holy nation of Israel were also guilty of sin. In Romans 3, 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. He quotes the Old Testament, which shows that there is sin involved in God's people. And he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, in verse 19, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore... By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In the 11th chapter, he reaches the similar conclusion of verse 32, that God has committed them all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. It's not that God forces us into sin, but he stresses that we all have sin. He makes it known to everybody, and he stresses the fact that there is no one that is exempt from that and the penalty of sin, which is the other need for forgiveness. Not just that all have sinned, but the fact that sin separates us from God. I meant to put Romans 6.23, not 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the wages of sin is death. And because of the severity of sin, its consequences are severe. And that's all the more reason we need forgiveness. Of course, it's spiritual death as it's opposite. The eternal life that is the gift of God in Christ Jesus is spiritual in Isaiah 59 and verses 1 through 2, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you that he will not hear. We know that death simply is a separation. 
Physical death, the separation of the soul from the body, and spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God who created it. And so we seek forgiveness lest we bear the penalty of sin in eternity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and even if we so happen to sin again, we are penalized with that wage that is spiritual death. But one day it will be solidified in eternity when Jesus comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and glory of his power. There will be eternal separation. So we seek forgiveness and we seek it desperately. But I also want to stress that all sin will be punished equally. There's not a sin that is greater than another sin in God's eyes. There's not a sin that will get you only to the first level of hell and another sin that will get you to the depth of hell. All sin is deserving of the lake of fire. As Revelation 21.8 records that the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We need to understand our desperate need for forgiveness for all of sin and the wages, therefore, are death. But we've got to have a desire for forgiveness. Consider that forgiveness cannot be obtained without first the desire for forgiveness. And you might question who wouldn't have a desire for forgiveness. The truth is not all do have a desire for forgiveness. And their life, if only just the way they act and live, will certainly manifest that. Sometimes it's because of pride and self-righteousness. As the tax collector in Jesus' parable, in Luke 18 and verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector asked for forgiveness. James 4, 6 through 10 calls us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift us up. We do that by drawing near to God, cleansing our hands, from sin and our hearts from being double-minded. Some do not seek and desire forgiveness because they're blinded by the craftiness of Satan's devices. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, the apostle Paul said, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Sometimes that's from a love of the world, as James 4 indicates. They don't want to break with sin. They like it too much. Maybe it's because of some internal bias that they have. They don't want to be wrong. They don't want the denomination they've always been a part of to be shown to be an error. Or maybe it's a family member that has passed on before. And if they obey the gospel, it solidifies the truth that they indeed are lost forever. And they don't want that to be the case. So they are blinded by Satan's ploys. You've got to desire forgiveness in order to be one who obtains it. And the main desire is because of the comfort of a good conscience that we all long for. Consider back in Psalm 32, David said, Blessed is the man whose sins are not imputed to him. And he gives a reason for that in verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. How much sleep have we lost in our guilt of sin? That's by God's design so that we can long for that pure conscience that he offers. David, in another psalm, one we're familiar with in Psalm 51, said in verse 3 that he acknowledged his transgressions and his sin was always before him. 
And he said to God against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And in verse 10, after acknowledging his sin, he asks God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Sin had taken a toll on his soul and he wanted that pure conscience and confidence before God. As 1 John 3 in verse 20 indicates that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. We know if we're right with God or not, and we may be able to trick others, but God knows we may be able to even trick ourselves, but God knows our heart. He's greater than our hearts. But if we know we're right with Him, then we have confidence. What a comforting thing. I did want to note, though, before we move on, that while this is a desire for a pure conscience, and therefore God will give a pure conscience in forgiveness, don't equate forgiveness with the erasing of all consequences, because that's not what forgiveness is. We may have to bear our consequences of our sins and transgressions before the Lord and others throughout the rest of our lives. There are some things that are etched in stone, if you will, that cannot be erased until this world and the physical existence is erased. Forgiveness does not equate with a release from all consequences, but definitely the eternal consequences. David was mentioned in Psalm 51 as wanting this pure conscience before God. And we read in 2 Samuel 12, after his sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah the Hittite, God told him that the sword would never depart from his house and the son that was born him through Bathsheba in that sin died because of his sin. God forgave him. He desired that pure conscience and received it to some degree. Yet he had to live with the consequences. How much more should we avoid sin? The desire for restoration of our favor before God is also the desire for forgiveness. There in verse 12 of Psalm 51, after asking for that cleansing of his heart and renewing the steadfast spirit within him, he asked God to restore him to the joy of his salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. We want to be in fellowship with God. Someone who doesn't want to be in fellowship with God will not soon seek forgiveness. So unless you love God and you want to be with God and you realize the importance of your creator and your relationship with him, forgiveness is unattainable. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, God called His people, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive the sin and heal their land. They've got to seek Him though. You can't get forgiveness unless you desire it. But understand where we have to seek forgiveness. This may seem obvious, but sometimes it's not always obvious. The origin of forgiveness comes from the main victim. By definition, it is offered by the one offended by your misdeeds and transgressions. In Matthew chapter 5 and verses 23 through 24, we certainly note that we're to seek forgiveness from those whom we wronged. In verse 23 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It is God's will that we seek the forgiveness of those we've wronged. And it's God's will that that forgiveness be given upon penitence. But I want to suggest to you, while that is good and pure and holy, that's not the main point. Even if the sin is committed against another, the main victim is God. Consider what David said in Psalm 51 and verse 4. Against you... 
You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. But he murdered Uriah the Hittite. He slept with Uriah's wife, sinning against Uriah in that regard and against her. He sinned against the entire nation he was king over as he stayed home instead of going out to battle and sending Uriah out to battle. He was not about the business of a king, and he certainly wasn't about God's business when he committed those heinous crimes. Yet it wasn't merely against Uriah. It wasn't against Bathsheba. It wasn't against the children of Israel. It was against God. Remember in Genesis 39 and verse 9 when Potiphar was given the authority in, or Joseph rather, was given authority in Potiphar's house and he was left alone with Potiphar's wife and his wife tried to lay with Joseph and, and, uh, provoke him to that sin. He said in verse 9 of Genesis 39, there is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Leading up to that last sentence, you might think his conclusion would be, how could I do this against my master Potiphar? But that was not his point. His whole focus as a God-fearing individual was always God. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I want us to consider one thing. You hear a lot about forgiving yourself. You need to just forgive yourself. You've been so hard on yourself. You need to forgive yourself. Or someone may desperately and fervently and sincerely ask the question, how could I ever forgive myself? And it seems good. That that seems like a good concept. And I think that it comes from a good place, although misdirected and misunderstood. I would suggest to you that the idea of forgiving self is not really biblical in the least. Firstly, understanding the logic of it. How can the offender also be the offended? I'm not saying that our sins don't do anything to us. The wages of sin is death. And we greatly do a disservice to ourselves when we sin. But that's not the central problem. It's not anywhere close to being the problem. And usually revolving around this idea of forgiving myself is a miss estimation and evaluation of sin itself. It's either I can forgive myself because this sin is easy to forgive of myself, or I can't even think about forgiving myself because of how evil I've been. But I want us to consider that if we have that estimation of sin, pride inheres in either side. Whether you think that you can forgive yourself because this sin is not that big of a deal, or you think you can't forgive yourself because the sin is too great. In Romans 12 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul said, Don't be lagging in diligence, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Implied from that and seen in other places in Scripture is that laziness is sinful. God wants us to be workers in His vineyard. Could you ever forgive yourself of being lazy? I'd be the first to say that, well, I think I would be able to do that. But do I think it's as severe as other sins? Why am I so quick to be able to forgive myself of just being lazy one day? And sometimes we justify those kinds of things. I know I should be doing this. I know I could be doing this. God's giving me this opportunity and I'm not redeeming this time. But I've been so good for so long. I'll just forgive myself of this one day of laziness. Why? I think there's some pride there. But think of this in Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. But I can't forgive myself ever if I were ever to commit adultery or fornication. 
That sexual sin is just on another level. If, if I commit that and I show myself to be that depraved, how could I ever forgive myself? I may be lazy for a day. I can forgive myself of that, no problem. But if I commit this, or maybe murder, we throw that in there, how could I ever forgive myself of that? But you know, really at the seed of that inability within your own mind to forgive yourself of a sin, even if it's to that degree of severity, at the seed of that is pride. In 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 12, the Apostle Paul said, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In the context, there were individuals eating meats offered to idols, and that as a liberty, but they had taken it too far. And the very ones who were against idolatry to a great degree were committing idolatry as they took that into the idol's temple. They would have never thought they would ever get that far. Take heed lest you fall. Because no temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. It's common to man, which means even you can be guilty of it. It's not about forgiving ourselves. We find relief in forgiveness, but it's really impossible for us to forgive ourselves because the origin of forgiveness is found with the main victim, the one who is main in the offense. And so either one fails to realize who the victim really is, which is God, or one fails to realize the severity of sin. I'd suggest to you that forgiveness from another, although God requires it, may not be possible because they may not have that piety before God that would acknowledge the need for themselves to forgive others who have wronged them. And forgiveness of self really is meaningless. What does it mean if you forgive yourself? Only God who forgives can rectify any offense, any sin before Him. And the way he corrects that is through a great price. And we need to understand that always. In Hebrews 9 and verse 22, the Hebrew writer writes, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. We noted one of the words, one of the main words that is translated into forgiveness in the New Testament in the Greek language is aphemai. This word translated into remission is in that root of that word and directly related to it, Ephesus. In fact, the New American Standard Bible translates the verse, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's no sending away of that sin. Blood is the price that has to be paid. And we can understand why throughout the scripture. Romans 6 and verse 23 again stated that the wages of sin is death. And this is not something that God can just overlook. The wages of sin have to be paid. God is a just God. And when sin is committed, there has to be death. And so it didn't have to be us. God, from the very beginning, early on in the grand scheme of things, gave blood as the price for our sins. In Leviticus 17 and verse 11, the law tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood And God says, I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your soul. Blood in Scripture is often, especially in context of forgiveness and atonement and redemption, is used figuratively by metonymy. It is the substitution of the name of an attribute of a thing for the thing itself. And so if death is the price or a life of a victim is the price for sin, and life of the flesh is in the blood, then blood is put for that death or put for that life that is given. When we read of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, it wasn't just that he gave his blood, it's that that led to his death. Or else Jesus could have just donated his blood, couldn't he have? 
Speaking about the death, there has to be death. That price has to be paid. So when blood is shed, life is given. That is, the death is paid. Consider in Leviticus 4 and verse 15 concerning the sin sacrifice and the sin offering. In verse 15, the elders of the congregations shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood into the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. And he shall do with the bull as he did with the bull as a sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, as Leviticus 17.11 said. But notice, and it shall be forgiven them. Without blood, there is no atonement. That is, there is no propitiation. The price is not satisfied. God's wrath is not satisfied. And therefore, without blood, there is no sending away of those sins. The price has to be paid. Consider what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us about those animals. A copious amount of animals, blood, rivers and rivers of blood that were shed under the Old Testament and there wasn't enough blood to pay the price for sins of mankind. The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. That's the desire. I want a pure conscience. And if those sacrifices worked, you would have a pure conscience. But the sin still weighs on your heart because you know it's not sufficient. Because in those sacrifices, verse 3, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So it's not just that the blood is the price for sin but the blood of the specific victim of prophecy, the blood of Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, after showing the type and the shadow of the things to come with the tabernacle and the day of atonement where the high priest enter in the holy of all by himself once a year with the blood of the atoning victim, that's demonstrated to only be a foreshadow of what is more glorious and potent in Christ's blood. Christ came in verse 11 as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls and uh, of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's so many things that makes Christ's sacrifice better. His purity, his sinless life, the fact that it was a voluntary sacrifice. I think we see that in Hebrews chapter 10 when the psalm is quoted concerning the body prepared for him for sacrifice and his willingness to submit to the Father's will. The fact that he is God who died for us through the eternal spirit he offered himself without spot. How much more shall that blood take away our sins? That is the price that had to be paid. In chapter 10, likewise, in verse 11, the contrast between the old law and the new law stands that they offered everyday sacrifices that could never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time awaiting for his enemies that are made his footstool. Notice what is quoted from the Old Testament in verse 16, Jeremiah 31 in that prophecy. This is the covenant that I will make with them 
After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. And he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That is the very definition of forgiveness. I've sent them away. They're out of my sight. They're out of my recognition and memory. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering of sin. There is remission, not in the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but in the sacrifice of Christ. And if there is true remission, then there needs no more be needs uh, to be no more sacrifices. That word remission is the same word back in chapter nine and verse twenty-two. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or no forgiveness. In Acts twenty and verse twenty-eight, Peter mentioned to the Ephesian elders that they should be shepherds to the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made them overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. The purchasing plot price was immense in value. In First Peter 1 and verse 18, he encourages them to know that they were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from their aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Indeed, the price that was paid for our forgiveness was invaluable, and therefore forgiveness needs to never be taken for granted. We always need to recognize the price that was paid for our forgiveness. Because if we sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And he shows how severe willful sin is after receiving that sacrifice for sins in verse 29. Of how much worse punishment than no one under the old law do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. That great price of the eternal offering of Christ and His blood, the death of the Son of God who was perfect, you count as a common thing and trample Him underfoot. We always need to recognize the price of our forgiveness. But I think that even more so, and in line with that, we need to understand the purpose of our forgiveness. This is often one that is misunderstood because again, sometimes we think selfishly and And we're self-centered in our thoughts thinking that forgiveness is all about the one being forgiven. That's not anywhere close to the purpose. Consider what we read in Ephesians, the first chapter concerning the spiritual blessings in Christ and a common phrase throughout that entire context. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Notice this, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. And what all of these spiritual blessings in Christ revolve around and the commonality in them all is the forgiveness of our sins. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. It's about the glory of God. And all spiritual blessings in Christ, God is glorified. The fact that we're forgiven of our wretchedness brings glory to God. And that's exactly how David understood it. And that's why in Psalm 51 and verse 1, he appealed to God's nature. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions based on who you are as my eternal God, the perfect and holy one, the one abundant in mercy and loving kindness, the one who has the power to forgive based on that nature of your merciful and loving kindness. Forgive me. 
And so when we are forgiven, it turns it all back on God to the praise of the glory of His grace. Forgiveness from God magnifies His glorious nature. And that is the purpose of forgiveness in totality. In Romans, the 11th chapter, in the conclusion of the apostles' dissertation on the righteousness of God in the gospel, after he said God had committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all, he concludes with this praise to God. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. We didn't know the way of salvation until he revealed it to us. And how wonderful is that way of salvation? But notice verse 36. For of him, that is the origin as we noted, and through him, that is through him, it, it persists, it consists, and to him be are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. That is its purpose, what it points toward, his glory. Forgiveness is for us and our benefit, yes. But ultimately, God is the main focus of forgiveness. And however else could it be, glory be to God for what He's done for us based on His nature. And so likewise, the purpose is the restoration of man to His glory. The very benefit that we do indeed receive from forgiveness is still to God's glory. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And so in our forgiveness, we're restored to that state of favor before God and a state which can glorify Him all the more. In Colossians 1 and verse 13 The Apostle Paul noted that he had delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love and who we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That word power there in the Greek is exosia. It means authority. And so we're delivered from the authority of darkness. That is Satan. We're no longer serving and submitting to him. To the kingdom of Christ who has all authority and now we're subject to him and we're following his will. That is to his glory. This is why the Apostle Paul mentioned in Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. The purpose is ultimately the glory of God. Consider the range of forgiveness. Someone might ask the question, is there any sin which is so great that God cannot forgive? And I want us to go back to that purpose to understand this. Because the range of God's forgiveness can certainly be understood based on the purpose of God's forgiveness. If the purpose of forgiveness is ultimately to glorify God, to manifest His wondrous nature and His divine attributes are put on display for the world to see, then what would an inability of God to forgive look like to the world? God can forgive how wonderful is His nature. God can forgive how powerful is His plan of salvation. God can forgive how pure is His Son's blood and how cleansing can it be. God can't forgive. Now we have a problem. God's not so powerful. God's not so great. God's not so incredible if there is a sin which cannot be forgiven. Consider the mercy of God and the fact that it is unlimited. But any sin that cannot be forgiven would put a limit on God's mercy. Yet the psalmist in Psalm 103 and verse 17 said, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. From everlasting to everlasting. That's not a concept that is easily thought of. And that's the point. 
There is no shortness of God's mercy. And if God cannot forgive a certain sin, then how limited is He in His power? Consider in Matthew 19, after the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to give up his riches to follow Christ, his disciples, that is Christ's disciples, were greatly astonished and said to Christ, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. He is infinitely powerful. There's no sin that cannot be forgiven of God or from God. But then we'll qualify that because while there's no specific sin that is so great God cannot forgive, as we noted, the desire is necessary to obtain forgiveness. So the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the one that is not repented of. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16, the apostle speaking of prayer and access to God and the fact that he'll give us what we ask for, he encourages his readers, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. If the wages of sin is death, that price, that wage has to be paid. Then what is a sin that does not lead to death except a sin that is repented of or separated from? You see, spiritual death is separation from God because God can't be in fellowship with sin. So the only way that sin will be forgiven is if we separate ourselves from it. Not just in God sending it away in forgiveness, but in our resolve never to return to it. He sends forth or sends away our sin when we have the resolve to repent of it, when we have the resolve to die to it. As the Apostle Paul mentioned in Romans 6 and verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? How shall we who are separated from sin live any longer in it? The only sin God can't forgive is the sin that is refused to be repented of. And lastly, consider, though, a very important point of the conditions of that forgiveness. Consider, as we just noted, that repentance is key. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul whose sin shall die, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And if he stopped there, that's a pretty sad story. That since I have sinned, I am lost, and it's on me. But notice in verse 21, he continues, If a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. God is willing and able to forgive, but we must repent as Jesus said in Luke 13, 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Sin that is not repented of cannot be forgiven. But we'll only repent of that sin if we're willing to confess it. In Romans, the third chapter, the Apostle Paul addressed the sin of the Jews and their reply that they continued to show throughout this book to the Romans and Paul perceived and answered ahead of time. In Romans 3 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, God has made many promises to the Jews, and so if they didn't obey the gospel, therefore God has rejected him. Isn't his faithfulness without effect? He didn't follow through. And so they're placing the blame on God. You're convicting me of sin, but I'm going to turn it around on God. 
But notice this, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but ever man a liar, as it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 51, a psalm of penitence with David and his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah, that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. Psalm 51 and verse 4 is the quotation where David said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. What Paul is telling the Jews in Romans 3 is to stop being so arrogant and prideful. Swallow that pride. Recognize that if God says you sin, then you have indeed sinned. Accept that. Own it. And seek that forgiveness. First John 1 and verse 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, this is, of course, addressed to those who have already been obedient to the gospel. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I want us to notice that He doesn't say if we confess that we have sinned. God, I've sinned, so forgive me. But He says if we confess our sins, it implies a specificity of sin. It's not enough to just say, God, generally I understand I've sinned and I need your forgiveness. We've got to own up to what was sinful. Sometimes people seek our forgiveness and they say, please forgive me. And we say, what for? And we do that because we want them to understand their offense. God won't forgive the one who doesn't confess their sins. And really one who doesn't confess their sins to God doesn't likely want that forgiveness. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And as we mentioned briefly before, obedience to the gospel is necessary. Christ's blood is that price that was paid for our forgiveness, but that blood is accessed in the gospel. In Romans 1 and verse 16, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that it is written, the just shall live by faith. I want to note two things. First, this faith, this belief, which receives that power of the gospel to salvation is identified in verse 5 and it is obedience to the faith or as the New American Standard Bible renders it, obedience of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and the saving faith is obedience to that standard. Secondly, in verse 17, the power of God to salvation is in the gospel because of what it reveals. It reveals the righteousness of God. That is God's plan of man to be righteous before him. That plan that, as he, Romans 9 indicates, the Jews did not submit to. The reason the power of God to salvation is in the gospel is because it is His plan of salvation revealed, and that by the blood of Christ. In Romans 3 and verse 21, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all and on all who, for, who believe all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. They're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice here, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. That word is translated into mercy seat in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint. Christ's blood accomplishes what the mercy seat being sprinkled with blood on the Day of Atonement one time a year by the high priest and the holiest of all typified. Christ's blood is the fulfillment. It satisfies God's wrath. It demonstrates His righteousness because in, in His forbearance, God passed over the sins previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. That is, the price was paid by Jesus' death, but also that He might be just in Christ's death in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If He justifies us without the death of Christ, He's not just. But that Christ died, and therefore we're forgiven through that death. He is shown to be a magnificent God. 
but it comes through obedience to that message of the righteousness of God. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8, Paul writes that Jesus will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and notice on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without obedience to the gospel, the blood is not accessed. And notice what Jesus said the gospel was in Mark 16, 15. He told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. If one does not believe and then he is not baptized, he will not access the propitiation in Christ's blood by faith. We access that grace by faith, Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. But you know, there's one more thing. One of the conditions to God forgiving us is our willingness to understand the great price of forgiveness and what it does in magnifying and glorifying God who authored it and therefore being able to forgive others as we have been forgiven. In Matthew 6 and verse 12, in the model prayer, Jesus mentioned that we should pray that God forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And He explains in verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus spoke a parable about this very principle in Matthew, the 18th chapter, where an individual needed forgiveness from his master. He had debts that were owed and he begged for forgiveness. And his master, although seemingly reluctantly, gave him that relief. But then he turned around and a servant he had was in the same situation. And when that servant begged him for forgiveness, after he had just received the blessedness of forgiveness from his own master, he refused to forgive him. And so his own master who gave him forgiveness said this, you wicked servant, verse 32, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he could pay all that was due him. And Jesus applies it. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Failure in unwillingness to forgive someone else of the wrong they've committed toward you shows your under evaluation of God's forgiveness. It shows your lack of appreciation for what God has done for you. And how dare we ever fail and refuse to forgive others when God forgave us of God knows and we know what evils we've committed. In Ephesians 4 and verse 32, Paul puts it this way. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We should never forget what God has done for us when someone else has done wrong to us. And we should offer them that forgiveness if they repent and come and seek it. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel, we want you to understand that you have no forgiveness of your sins. But that forgiveness can be obtained this evening. The price has been paid. The plan has been made. And it's been executed. And it's offered in the very words of Christ. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am lowly in, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is the invitation we extend to you this evening. And if you have obeyed the gospel, and you've fallen short in some sense or fashion, perhaps you just need encouragement along this path to heaven. Whatever we can do for you and assist you with in a spiritual way, we ask you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.